So the reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10, going to chapter 2, verse 5. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Seraphis. Another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of, his, of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded miraculous signs and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written... Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And uh, let's uh, come before God and ask for his blessing.
Father, thank you. Thank you, Father God, that you've drawn us together this morning. And we thank you for your word. We pray that as we consider your word now, that you would help us to focus our minds. And Father, we pray that you'd give us flexible hearts, that uh, we would listen and we would obey what you're saying to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great experiences in the Christian life is that uh, God, in his goodness, um, blesses the church with certain preachers, teachers, pastors, leaders, who uh, have a significant impact uh, on us as individuals. Uh, They may be people in congregations that we've been part of over the years, perhaps a youth group leader or a Bible study group leader, Uh, or a minister. Uh, They may be people outside of our congregation, people who've got a wider ministry, for example, uh, Christian authors, people who write uh, books, Christian books, which uh, we find particularly helpful for us in our Christian life, and uh, commentaries that help us to understand the Bible better and so on. Of course, uh, in the age of the internet, Uh, We can now listen to uh, gifted preachers uh, from all over the world. Uh, It used to be the case that you'd have to order a a tape or a CD and uh, wait for them to arrive. But now all it takes is the click of a mouse. And uh, you can listen to famous preachers, uh, men like John Piper, men like Martin Lloyd-Jones, and others all available on the internet and it only takes seconds for uh, that content to be delivered uh, into your computer and into your brain. It's right for us to value and to thank God for those who have taught us the word of God and have done a good job of it. I know personally I really treasure people who Uh, throughout my Christian life have taught me the Bible and have helped me to get to know God better. Uh, There are certain authors that I love to read. There are certain preachers who I really enjoy sitting under their their ministry. But in that, there can sometimes be a danger, can't there? Uh, It's hard to um, describe this, but sometimes our enthusiasm for a particular preacher or teacher or, or author can kind of slip into a, a sort of a like a hero worship. Uh, again, it's hard to describe what I mean by that, but you know, a couple of examples of how that can happen may, may be helpful. Uh, for example, we might find ourselves turning only to a particular Bible teacher for answers to questions that we've got and ignoring what other Bible teachers have to say. Uh, or we can, uh, we can use that person as like the standard by which we evaluate other Bible teachers. And usually the other Bible teachers um, come off second best. And what that can sometimes mean is that God's good gift to us of preachers and teachers and pastors uh, can actually become a difficulty for us, a stumbling block for us. Now, last week, uh, we kicked off a short series of sermons on the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Corinth, of course, was a city in Greece. We saw that on the map last week. 
The ancient Greeks were known for their love of heroes. I mean, after all, they were the people who started up the Olympic Games. But they were a sophisticated society and they valued philosophy and philosophers. A philosophy, by the way, means to love wisdom. Um, the, the Greeks were famous for it. In fact, all of the, uh, the, the famous philosophers of the ancient world who have actually shaped much of our civilization now, uh, they're all Greeks, uh, people like Socrates and Plato and, and Aristotle. Uh, they were Greeks. The Greeks were the philosophers. And in popular Greek culture, they admired the, they admired the, the person who could give a good talk about life and about meaning and about those bigger kind of higher level thinking issues. Uh, in fact, there were people who made a living from doing that. There were, there were men who travelled uh, from town to town, from city to city, uh, gathering crowds of people around them and they would uh, entertain people by giving them uh, philosophical talks. And they would get paid for doing so. But whether or not what they taught was true was actually less important than questions like, you know, was the person a good orator? Uh, was the person witty? Were they clever? Were they engaging? How did they rank? Now, it's not surprising that uh, this kind of thinking which was embedded in the culture would also find its way into the Christian church. Uh, if you open up your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see there in verse 10 that uh, the church in Corinth was divided. There were divisions in the church. And the word there in the original means to be, to be cut apart. Uh, it was that kind of divisiveness. And the issue upon which people had divided was the issue of their favourite preachers and pastors. Have a look, for example, in verse 11, where Paul says there, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. There are different groups. There are, there are kind of cliques within the church and they were based around their Christian hero, the pastor, the preacher, the teacher that they loved and, and were, were connected with most. Now, I'll say something about the the Christ group in a few moments, but I just want to focus on those groups who'd, who'd, uh, who, who had kind of connected themselves with the uh, individual men, with uh, Paul, with Apollos and with Cephas. Uh, neither of those men lived in Corinth, but uh, they had had their influence. They had ministered to the church in Corinth uh, at different times in different ways. And in one sense, it, it does make sense that people would be attracted to and would have an affinity with particular leaders. 
Some people we see there were attached to Paul. Um, stands to reason. Um, just reflect on their history. It was Paul who had taken the gospel to Corinth in the first place. He was the missionary. So many of the church members at this time would have been people who came to know Christ and who were saved through the evangelistic ministry of Paul. And so you can understand why they would have a strong personal affection towards Paul. Then there was the Apollos group. Now, Apollos, uh, we read in Acts 18, he was a, a young man who had come from the... Uh, he was a Jewish man, but he'd come from the uh, Egyptian city of Alexandria. Uh, in the first century, Alexandria was the... Um, kind of like the intellectual uh, city of the Mediterranean. Uh, there was a great library there in, in Alexandria. It was kind of like the university city. And in Acts cha chapter 18, Apollos is described for us, and he's described in these terms. Uh, it's said that he was a learned man who taught accurately about Jesus, who spoke with great fervour, and who vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So it gives you a bit of a picture as to the kind of person that Apollos was. And you can understand why he would actually go down very, very well in Greek culture. The Greeks loved the person who had eloquent speech. They would have been very impressed by Apollos. Then there was the Cephas group. Cephas is the Aramaic name. Peter is the Greek name. Peter, uh, we're not told in the scriptures of his ministry in Corinth. Uh, he may have visited Corinth at some stage. There may have been uh, Christians in the church at Corinth who'd, who'd been to Jerusalem uh, because Peter was the, was the head. Uh, he was the, 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 the pastor, if you like, of the church in Jerusalem. And so it may well be that the Jewish Christians in the Corinthian church felt a special uh, connection with Peter. But then there was another group. They are the ones who said, uh, we don't follow Paul. We don't follow Apollos. We don't follow Cephas. We are the ones who follow Christ. Now, what do you think about that? Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, except that they've actually become like a clique. There's, a, there's an underlying problem here with this, with this group. And uh, in churches uh, all over uh, at different times, it's not uncommon to find people who, who sit uncomfortably under human leadership. I mean, who needs leaders anyway? I mean, who needs Peter? Who needs Apollos? Who needs Paul? We've got Christ. We only follow Christ. He is our head. But then you scratch below the surface a little bit and sometimes you find that these people um, are a little bit anti-authority. They're a little bit uh, individualistic, a little bit uh, anti-establishment. Scratch a bit further uh, under the surface 
and you sometimes find that actually they would prefer to be the leaders themselves. Uh, one of the commentators I read on this uh, said that uh, these people often don't hang around in the church. He said, and I quote, the interesting point about the Christ party is that they tend to hive off and go and form their own church because they feel that the average local church is not spiritual enough for them. Uh, they are the spiritual elites. The Corinthian church was being very Greek. Uh, the Greek model of glorifying the philosopher, glorifying the man, of valuing and evaluating uh, the person by his knowledge, his eloquence, his oratory, his mastery of the public speech. And what they're doing is that they're now evaluating their Christian leaders in that same way. But it's the wrong model. It's the wrong model to use. In chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this. He says, OK, let's take Greek philosophy and Greek philosophers and then we'll take the gospel and we'll see how the gospel stacks up against Greek philosophy. Then we'll take you, the Corinthian church, and we'll see how you stack up against the Greek way of valuing people. And then we'll take me, Paul, and see how I stack up against these Greek philosophers and this way of valuing people. And so how does the gospel stack up against Greek philosophy? Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Right, what is he saying? Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher? Human knowledge, human wisdom, human ability can achieve great things, and Paul's not knocking that, but the one thing it can never do and has never done is come to know the truth about God personally. Doesn't matter how wise you are, doesn't matter how educated you are, doesn't matter how intelligent you are, by your own knowledge, you cannot know God. In fact, 
in contrast to the sophistication of Greek philosophy, the cross of Jesus actually looks pretty, pretty foolish, pretty silly, really, pretty stupid. Think about you know, what the gospel is saying. The, the gospel is saying that there was a, a Jewish carpenter turned preacher who got himself into trouble with the law, got arrested, got nailed up to a, to a cross, died, and later on he came back to life. Believe in that message and you'll understand the meaning of the universe. Believe in that message and you'll actually get to know the God who has created all things and you'll have a relationship with him that will go on forever. You see, a Greek philosopher is going to look down his nose at that, saying, how crass, uh, how unsophisticated. Uh, a Jewish guy back in the, good, in the backwoods of Judea gets nailed up to a cross and you reckon that's the greatest message that there is. But friends, God in his way, it looks foolish. And there'll be people who we talk to who will think, no, it's, it's a foolish myth. You know, ancient man's th thoughts, not relevant today. But God in his wisdom has chosen the foolishness of the cross to be the very means by which he restores men and women into relationship with himself. It looks foolish, but in his wisdom, he's actually using that to shame the wisdom of the wisest people who, without a revelation from God, cannot get to know him. So that's how the gospel stacks up to Greek philosophy. What about the Corinthian Christians themselves? How do they stack up in terms of the way that the Greeks valued people? Verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Were there lots of philosophers in the, Christian, in the Corinthian church? No. Uh, were there lots of wealthy people in the Corinthian church? No. Uh, were there lots of impressive, gifted, articulate people in the Corinthian church? No. Oh, there's probably a few of them. But God doesn't value people in the way that the Greeks did. In fact, God chooses all kinds of people. God, God chooses people who, by worldly standards, are actually not very impressive. I mean, look at how Paul refers to them. There he, he calls them people who are foolish and, and who are weak and who are lowly and who are despised. Right? Uh, we saw last week in chapter 6 that some of the Christians in the Corinthian church, before they became Christians, uh, worked as male prostitutes. Uh, some of them were, were thieves. Some were drunks. Some were rip-off merchants. 
I mean, you know, this is hardly sophisticated philosopher territory, is it? And they've got nothing to boast about. They themselves did not stack up particularly well against the Greek way of valuing people. But now they know the gospel. Now they have knowledge which outstrips the knowledge of the, of the, the best philosophers. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They've got nothing on these guys. Because the knowledge that they have, the knowledge of salvation, puts the philosophers to shame. And the only person they can boast about, Paul says, is God. So that's how they stacked up. What about Paul himself? How did Paul stack up against the Greek way of valuing people? Verse 1 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, is this the Greek image of the impressive hero who arrives in town? No, far from it. Before Paul was in Corinth, he was in Berea. Before uh, he was in Berea, he was in Philippi. And when he took the gospel to Philippi, uh, he was persecuted, he was arrested, he was whipped. They whipped him. They beat him. They threw him in prison. That's the kind of reception he got in Philippi. He says, when I came to Corinth, I came to you in fear and trembling. He, what sort of reception was he going to get there? He's not a masochist. He felt that when he suffered. But more than that, Paul... Although he was a very intelligent man, quite evidently, the way he describes himself here and in other places is that uh, he didn't have a reputation for being an impressive speaker. And there was one guy who um, Paul was preaching one night and uh, in an upstairs room and a fellow fell asleep in Paul's sermon and dropped out the window and died <laughs> and got resurrected. Okay, we're not elevated here and no one's sitting close enough to windows. That's good. But, you know, Paul was probably thinking, well, you know, what are people going to think of him when he turns up to, to a Greek city? Right? Well, he says, I resolved to know nothing. I made up my mind. I deliberately intended to not know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, Paul could have spruced up his message. Uh, he, could have, he could have made it a more philosophical, more uh, impressive message if he'd wanted to in order to impress the Greeks. But in verse 5, he says, no, no, I, I don't want people to put 
their faith in me and in my wisdom, I decided that I'm going to stick to the foolish message of the gospel and I'm going to trust that God, by his Holy Spirit, will take that message and use it to transform lives. Now, friends, the Spirit of God is powerful. I wonder if you've ever... uh, been in the situation uh, where God has opened up an opportunity for you, maybe in the workplace or in the na- you know amongst family members or neighbours or whatever. God's just opened up this little opportunity for you to speak to a non-Christian and to say something about Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And you've thought to yourself, "All right, this is the opportunity. I'm going to have a crack at it. I'm going to go for it." And you start to feel a bit nervous, don't you? You, you, Your heart starts to pump a bit faster and a bit thicker and heavier and, you know, and you start to get a bit sweaty and you you kind of stumble through your words a little bit and and afterwards you've you've walked away and you've thought, I wasn't very clever. (laughs) That was not very impressive. You know, I was scared. And I reckon the other person probably picked up on that and knew that I was scared. And what are they going to think of me now, now that they know what I actually believe? You ever found yourself in that situation? And then later on, uh, you've actually heard that the words that you spoke really helped that person, provoked them to think about God maybe even drew them to God. You know, the guy that shared the gospel with me, uh, he wasn't, I don't think he was very impressive. I, I, don't, I don't remember what he looked like, don't remember his name, don't know who he was. Just a guy that just came and went, came, spoke some words and off he went and changed my life. And the reason is that it's not, up to, do, it's not to do with how impressive we are, it's got to do with whether we actually We'll just speak those words of the gospel and trust that the Holy Spirit will do his work of converting people. Well, Paul's point through the rest of chapter 2, which we don't have time to deal with in great detail, his point is this, that the gospel is not an earthly message, that the gospel is a spiritual message which can only be understood by those whom God has given the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, it makes no sense. And because it is a spiritual message which is spiritually discerned, which comes through the God-giving person the gift of the Holy Spirit, it means that all kinds of people respond to it. There will be wise philosophers who will respond to it. Will be, there will be male prostitutes who will respond to it. There will be drunkards. That will, there will be people like you and me who respond to this message. Mind you, God clearly uses human leaders. Uh, next week when Peter uh, preaches on chapter 3, you'll see that uh, Paul says that Paul planted the seed in Corinth. Apollos came along and Apollos taught them. He watered the, you know, the seed. 
But why did the church grow? Because of God. God gave the growth. God gives us gifted preachers and teachers and pastors, but their work achieves nothing without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The church in Corinth was being very Greek. Uh, They were worshipping their Christian heroes. Sadly, it seems that uh, they didn't change from that any time soon after Paul wrote this letter. Uh, There is another letter which was written to the Corinthian church about 40 years after. Uh, It's not in the Bible. It's not scripture. Uh, It was written by one of the uh, pastors of the church in Rome, a fellow by the name of Clement of Rome. And uh, we, we still have this letter, or the copies of the letter. And in the letter, he rebukes the Corinthian church... Uh, because there was a problem in the Corinthian church. Guess what the problem was? Hero worship. They were divided around particular personalities. Um, Only then, uh, their heroes were not men like Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Their heroes were men who actually did not believe the gospel who were taking people away from Jesus. Paul's passion is for unity in the the Corinthian church and for their unity to be in Jesus. And so in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul asked the church in Corinth three questions. And I want to finish the sermon today by asking these three questions of us. Have a look at verse 13. See the three questions there? Question one. Paul asks them, is Christ divided? Well, the answer to that, of course, is no. You you can't have a bit of Christ here and a bit of Christ there. Christ is not divided. And friends, as a church, we are the body of Christ. And so we must be united, not divided. Uh, Of course, we will have our different ministries that we belong to. We will have our different groups that we go to. We'll have our different service times and so on. Friends, that's not division. That's part of the vibrancy of, uh, of church life. Division happens when in our hearts we separate ourselves from each other relationally. Uh, when we uh, develop grievances against one another and form our little cliques and don't deal with those issues in a scriptural way. Uh, When we centre ourselves around particular personalities, when we don't treat each other as being brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the same body. That's what the Corinthians were doing. Question two, verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? Obviously not. But whenever we focus too much on a gifted leader, what happens is we end up taking our eyes off Jesus. And when we do that, that will always lead to disunity with other Christians because we don't expect other Christians to be focusing on the same leader that we focus on. And we become divided. 
Jesus is the only one who unites us. Jesus is the only one who can unite us. And how does Jesus do it? By being crucified for us. Paul wasn't crucified. Apollos wasn't crucified. Cephas wasn't crucified for them. Jesus was. As he was for us. And question three. Were you baptised into the name of Paul? Uh, To be baptised into someone's name means to sign your life over to that person. To give yourself to them. To submit to their authority. If we're Christians, we have signed our lives over to one person and one person alone. To Jesus. We signed our lives over to Christ in order to love him, to serve him, and to be united in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of the cross, which is foolishness to worldly people who do not have your spirit. Father, we thank you that uh, that foolish message uh, has been applied to the hearts of foolish people like us and weak people like Paul. And through it, you have chosen to bring people into relationship with yourself, including us. And in so doing, Lord, that it is clear that this work of salvation is your work alone that man in our intelligence, our wisdom, our strength, we cannot do what you have done. And so we pray, Father God, that we would be united in that message. Uh, Help us to uh, not be divided. Help us not to worship uh, those who have helped us Christianly, to thank you for them, Uh, to honour them in a way that is honouring to you, but not to segregate, segregate, not to split, not to form cliques. We pray, Father God, that we would be a loving and a united church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.